This episode of the West Buck Show is brought to you by Elite Motorsports, my friends. Located in Winniewood, Oklahoma, gosh, I love saying Winniewood, Elite Motorsports is your premier dealer for all your motorsports transportation needs. Elite Motorsports offers a wide variety of semi-transporters, motor coaches, gooseneck and stacker trailers, specialty hospitality and point-of-sale units, as well as new and used high-performance engines, race cars, and racing equipment. I've been there. They've got so much stuff, it's almost unbelievable. Elite Motorsports works closely with all the racing industry's premier manufacturers, so if they don't have what you're looking for, they'll go out and find it for you. Before you purchase a newer used race rig, check out Elite Motorsports at EliteMotorsportsLLC.com. And tell them that Wes sent you. They'll probably give you a smoking deal or tell you never to call again, one or the other. I'm not positive. EliteMotorsportsLLC.com. These guys are real deal racers, and they will work hard to take care of you. And don't forget that they accept trades. We're also brought to you by Aeromotive Incorporated, a true high-performance aftermarket manufacturer specializing in fuel delivery and fuel system components for drag racing, off-road, late model, street rod, and muscle car, tuner, sports car, marine, and power sports. Utilizing aerospace tolerances and procedures, three generations of track experience, and a meticulous approach to engineering, Aeromotive Fuel Systems offers the pinnacle of performance fuel delivery. The team at Aeromotive believes that performance means reliability, longevity, and durability. That's the philosophy they've built their company and their products on, so dial up aeromotiveinc.com, aeromotiveinc.com on the World Wide Web and get after it. Whether you've got a twin-turbo LS on E85 or a roots-blown Hemi, Aeromotive has what you need. This is, seems like a very fitting one because it's hard for me to have identified anybody out in the drag racing space that wants to talk as bad and as painfully as I do. But I, I think I may have met my match in the one and only Shane Tecklenburg, or, is ha or as he is lovingly referred to in our community and around the world, Shane T. Thank you so much, man. Tuner extraordinaire. The story, I really don't, there's so many layers to this onion that I'm, I'm having a hard time. As I was prepping for this interview, I'm reading stories and digging through all these records and all this world travel and this deep, deep history of working on pro mod cars when you're a teenager, and I'm going, man... I don't even really know where to start, but at the bare minimum, man, I know you're busy. I know this is between races, and I appreciate you taking the time. You doing well today? Yeah, man, I'm doing great. Man, that's exciting shit you're talking about. I'm excited to listen to whoever this guy is. I know, man. It's get, We better live up to the hype, dude. And honestly, I think one of the things that is kind of just to start here and kind of dive into this story in a modern fashion, because we can touch on history and we can we can take a deep dive here. And I definitely want to do that. But one of the things that I've experienced, probably more so so far in 2019 than I really ever have previously in my career, has just been wide open throttle travel. I've always traveled, quote unquote, a lot. But, you know, going to every NHRA national event this year and a handful of other events. And it's just been like this whirlwind. And I think about people like you, Shane, who typically by this time of year have been in multiple countries, have been all over creation, have worked on all these different applications, all these different types of cars. And it's not just drag race cars. It's all types of cars. So I'm just curious, man, how do you how in the hell do you even attempt to keep yourself healthy and sane in and in maintain a family um, amidst this whirlwind of travel? Have you met me? I'm neither healthy nor sane. <laughs> true story. True story. You so, got me. So all of those that stuff, you know, I started doing this before I had a family because um, I went to work for Motec in 2001. And so I, I went to work 
Edmotech as a backup to the main uh, engine management tuner that worked there and had been there for years. And they brought me on to kind of take the slack up because, man, this gets hard, and especially if you're the one and only guy. You're like you just said, you're in a whirlwind. You're going one. You you leave with the intention of going one place and you end up going two other places before you come home. Um, it's so true, man. And so I, you know, I pretty quickly uh, learned from learned from what those guys taught me and, uh, you know, started traveling around. I did support work in IMSA and Grand Am and NHRA Pro Stock Bike. And then it didn't take long before I ended up being sort of the number one guy. I went from number two to number one. Um, because I was, you know, I was younger and a bit more flexible and I could, I yeah, could you're travel willing to I do that family, stuff, so. right? Yeah, you'll go do it. And yeah, dude, you'll it was, go do that stuff. Man, there was literally like, I mean, when you're single and you don't have anything tying you down and well, that, that came across wrong, but when you don't have anything to return home to any real good reason to come back home, I mean, man, I, there was times where I would leave once again, I would go to Atlanta or something, and then I would end up getting a phone call from the office like, okay, now we need you to go to New York. So I go to New York and tune a motorcycle, and then, oh, hey, these guys called, and they need a, a boat worked on down in Florida. So I go to Florida and work on that. And then, oh, well, now it's only two days until I have to be back in Florida to work on a drag race car or something. So I would turn around and either fly home for one day and then fly out the next day right back or try to stay over there for two days or whatever. But, I mean, there was times when I would know that was coming. And I would literally have two bags packed. I would leave my house with one bag and come home, drop the dirty one off, grab the clean one, go right back to the airport and fly back out the same day. It's crazy, man. And I, I, I commend you for it because and I'm not just like, you know, bragging on you or blowing smoke, but it's. I personally feel like that's some of the hardest stuff. Like, listen, it's hard to work on race cars and it's hard to figure this stuff out. But just doing all of that all the while dealing with airports and being tired and up early to catch a flight or up late working on something and going on going without sleep that's one of the things that I'm just been exposed to at a severe level so far in 2019 I'm like man I don't know how these guys maintain this pace for so long and and you're right anytime I get like a young kind of enterprising young man or woman that asks me advice or whatever and I and I don't mean it, it does sound bad or whatever, but like one of the first things I ask them is, do you have a family? Do you have a wife or a husband or kids or anything? And when they tell me no, I hate to say what I'm about to say, but I say good because that stuff's great. And my kids and my wife, they're the, the you know, they're my prized possessions. They're the most important thing in my life. But there is no doubt that it's it's that's a responsibility that requires time and effort and energy. And if you're young and you're trying to, to make a splash and do something as significant as, you know, like what you've done and become this world renowned tuner and uh, engine and power management guy to accomplish that, you really have to just it's like reckless abandon. You have to dive in both feet. And I'm curious. So the, one of the things I, I read a story that we actually ran in drag illustrated uh, many moons ago about you. And I love the title of it. Power broker. <laughs> I was like, this is such a fantastic title for this story. The headline. I'm a headline guy. So I don't know if I wrote that. It seems like something I would have made up. But anyways, fantastic, fantastic article. Uh, Ian Tucker put together in a I don't yeah. know how long ago this was, but it's been a minute. It's been like 50 or 60 issues ago. But <laughs> there was one thing in there and we'll we'll get back to the travel because this kind of circles back around. Yeah. One of the things that I found super interesting about your story, Shane, is these posts you make on Facebook that you're 
your quote unquote remote tuning. I think it's yeah. like the funnest, funniest phrase, you know, because you just have a hard time as a guy who like you kind of grew up in a mechanic family. You know, my dad owns an auto repair shop and my yep. uncles are mechanics and yep. like it, the simplicity of that life, you know, and it's you solve the problem that's right in front of you. You know, you lean over the fender. That's right. what you do. And to see you constantly talking about this remote tuning thing, I think it's really interesting. I mean, you'll be in Southern California where you're based and tuning on a car in Dubai or Abu Dhabi or Australia or whatever. I find that so interesting. But what I think is even more interesting is that this shit is nothing new for you guys. Your dad and actually started a business where he was doing diagnosing like auto repair issues over the phone like, like right. many moons ago. That's hard to believe, man. That's that's I mean, that's it. it, it at the core of it, that's that's where it all really started. So my dad was an auto shop teacher, and he also owned a repair shop in uh, West Covina, California. And he and my mom, my mom was born in Alaska, and they both lived in Denver, met in Denver, and then moved to California when my dad got a job uh, teaching auto shop. My dad went to college in Greeley, Colorado with Jerry Darian. So they used to race together when they were in college. Uh, and then they both ended up getting jobs in Southern California's auto, auto shop teachers. My dad at West Covina High School <clears throat> and Jerry Darian um, at, like, I think Gladstone High School in, uh, uh, let's see, where's NHRA? Wherever NHRA is. I can't think of the name. San Dimas. Not Glendora. There. Glendora. That's it. Thanks. <clears throat> so anyway, um, so he did that thing. And then from time to time, him and my mom would go on trips with my mom's parents back to Alaska. And he always just loved it. So he decided one day that he had enough of Southern California and wanted to move to Alaska uh, and, and bought an auto parts store in Kenai, Alaska. And we moved there in 1981. And wow. so this parts store was, you know, I mean, Alaska was, I mean, it was the push, man. From California to Alaska, it was like, it's like going to the moon. Uh, there was there weren't any. Um, there's there's a Johnny people. Horton song about it. North, yeah, there is. North to, to Alaska. Alaska. Oh, going yeah, north, right. the rush is on. Yeah. I love that song. So do I. I played all the time. But anyway, so so uh, the deal was that you know up there everything was like it's probably 20 years behind or more. They were doing inventory on three by five note cards, uh, and wow. you know the, when they were ordering parts, it like taking you know a week and a half to get a part in, instead of the next day, like what my dad was used to in California. So. He said, man, there's got to be a better way. I want to get a computer system in here to track inventory. So at the time, the systems that you could actually go purchase for doing that job were like way beyond his budget. So he found, like through a couple friends, some local young junior high school kid that was a programmer, right? A journeyman programmer on Apple, Apple computers. So he was writing his own code. And writing programs at junior, you know, like 14 or 15 years old. And he was selling them to people that to do different things. So anyways, they got in touch with this kid and he ended up writing an inventory control program based on what my dad told him he wanted to keep control of the inventory in, in the parts store. And that obviously was a huge step forward compared to three by five cards. Um, and that let the business grow. And my dad made some contacts in Anchorage and there, you know, there's people constantly flying back and forth up there going to the oil fields. So he found a guy at a local airport that had empty seats on a plane sometimes coming back and forth and started having parts delivered on the airplane. So you could come in in the morning, order parts and have them in the afternoon. So now it was much more like California. So that business turned into something really big. And then eventually after a couple of years of being in the cold and being away from the sunshine and the stuff they were used to. My parents were like, okay, we're out of here. We're going back to California. 
So we did. So that leaves my dad with uh, an opportunity to maybe sell these systems that he has created with this kid to other people with auto parts stores. So that's his idea when he comes back here. Um, but in, in, in order to make ends meet in the meantime, he also takes a job as a, as a trainer at a company called Allen Test Products. So what they make is they make the machines that you hook on a car to look to scope the ignition and you know check compression and all that stuff. It's a, it's a big diagnostic tool at that time that rolled around on a cart about the size of a yeah, giant toolbox yeah. with a screen on it and tried to help a mechanic decide what was wrong with the car. So anyways, he's doing that and he's selling, he sells a couple of these systems to guys with auto parts stores. And he realizes, holy shit, this is a huge support nightmare. When this was my shop and the system was screwed up and I had to stay there till two in the morning and fix it, it was mine. So it wasn't really a problem. But when these guys are calling me at two in the morning, cause their shit's fucked up and I got to drive all the way over there and, you know, help them. And there's like, I'm not getting, I'm not getting paid for that. Cause I sold them the system outright and I'm just now I'm just tied to this thing forever so he realizes that's no good while he's doing this training stuff and he's also doing a little bit of teaching at the college level as an automotive instructor he realizes that there's a huge lack a huge disconnect in the industry because in 1980 because of the federal admission standards they pretty much all the manufacturers came out with computer controls on their cars so now a quadrajet carburetor that in 1978 or 79 had a bunch of vacuum hoses on it and a guy could take it off the truck or car, take it over on the bench, disassemble it and look at what was going on to see what's right, wrong. Right, right, right. You now have a computer in the car that's doing some other who knows whatever it's doing because the information hasn't yet reached the aftermarket. So these cars are falling out of uh, they're falling out of warranty going back to the dealer and they're starting to show up in independent repair shops and guys are like, I don't know what this is a carburetor with wires. What do I do with this? And there's literally no information on it. So he thinks back to when he had his shop in West Covina and he says, man, so what used to happen is, you know, we worked on Chevy's Fords and Chrysler's, whatever, but when we'd get a Toyota that was screwed up, we'd call our buddy down the street that specialized in Toyotas and say, Hey, this thing doesn't run. What usually screws up on them? You know? And he'd say, Oh man, the, the vacuum advance on the distributor is always bad. Put one of those in, it'll probably fix it. And so he's man, wouldn't it be bitching if there was a way to track that information in a computer and be able to be that guy for everybody where no matter what you're working on, when it comes in your shop, Holy if you don't know how to shit, fix it, man, can you, you could, imagine you how could, far ahead he was? Right. So this is 83, 84, right? So, oh my so God. he comes up with this concept, calls the kid that wrote the software for the inventory management program up at Alaska, flies them down to California and has them write the program on an Apple to do the same job. And he hires one of his former students from high school auto shop uh, from yeah from high school auto shop to be an employee and man a telephone and then he goes around and tries to sell it to the shops so the problem at that time you can see how far ahead of its time it was it was a hotline service that you called you gave them your account number they charged you a fixed amount a month and you could call as much as you want to get help on everything so they had a, a full selection of mitchell manuals to be able to have the manuals that people in the shops maybe didn't have and a computer tracking uh, failures since by symptom that was searchable by the guy man in the phone. And then obviously a knowledgeable guy on the phone to help you work your way through anything. That's not something that just simply pops up with an answer. So the, the problem is you're dealing with mechanics and I guess it's just a cross section of humanity, but it's like race car guys. They got an ego problem and they don't want to admit they don't know something. So there's a whole, there's a whole 
like spectrum of guys that like they know they don't know anything and they're willing to admit it and you can help those guys. And then there's some guys that know some stuff that just need a little bit of guidance. And then there's right. some guys that they just want you to fall in the same trap they fell in so that they don't have to feel dumb. Right. So so it was it was difficult to sell. Um, and he he kind of put up with it for a couple of years and was about to wash his hands of it. And Shell Oil Company called him. And they said, hey, we've heard about your hotline service. And Shell Oil Company didn't care anything about – oh, sorry, I got ahead of myself. So Shell Oil Company calls them, and they say, hey, we want to use your hotline service because we have all these auto care dealers all across the country that have repair shops in their gas stations or gas stations in their repair shops if you want. But they're a Shell auto care dealer. And the problem is they're going out of business because they can't fix cars. And we don't really care that they're going out of business because they can't fix cars, except that means they don't sell gas. So we want to use your service to try to help, you know, our dealers and our network stay in business and stay profitable so they can continue to sell gas for us. So that was a huge thing. Finally, somebody paid enough attention. So he went, had a bunch of meetings in Houston with Shell Company, and they came to an agreement. And in 86, they put every single auto care dealer that they had in the whole entire United States on my dad's hotline service. So now all of a sudden wow. my dad's trying to hire people as fast as he can hire them to man phones. And it goes from and a that's one- how it happens, man. But yep. that's a, that's a story of business a yep. lot of times, right? I mean, it is feast or famine. So to fast forward, that concept started young in my life. Right. And I eventually went to work for that company and then it eventually was sold to snap on. And then I went to Motec, but the concept of helping someone do something from afar where you can't see it with your own eyes. You have to relate to the person on the other phone and get them to tell you or give you the information you need so you can make the decision from afar. That's almost something that would I would say would come naturally to me because I was brought up through that era. So when what happened was I, I, I used to, uh, when I quit working at Motec in 2005, 2006, I went to go be a crew chief on Chris Rado's Sport Compact um, Scion in 2006. And part of the deal was I got to still be a contractor to work with other teams, um, that weren't running in sport compact series. So I still got to have all my contacts that I had when I was at Motec, you know, through grand American road racing series, IMSA, and you name it. Well, I had these guys that did Vipers out of Chicago, SVS. And I swear, man, every, even when I worked at Motec, I would fly to Chicago and this wasn't just them. It was everybody, but these guys had called me and said, look, we you know, we want you to come out. And they wanted me to come out during a time when I couldn't come. <clears throat> I had another friend of mine who was also a car guy, had his own shop. Uh, and he was on the side doing some IT stuff for multiple companies in different states. Uh, and like he was running their inventory control, their payroll, whatever. And he told me about this, this thing called, what was it called then? Let's go to assist now, but it was... Like go, go to, to office go or to whatever. My, go to my PC. So he's like, man, I got oh, yeah. this thing. Go to my PC and it works bitching. You can run it over the internet, over dial up. And basically you remote control a computer on the other end. And all they got to do is make sure the thing's on the internet and you send them a code. They type it in. You have full control of the PC. You can even reset it and do all kinds of stuff. So I'm like, man, that's really cool. So I start thinking like, wow, I wonder if I could, I wonder if I could tune a car using that. So I just to test the theory, I went to some 
guys that have been friends of mine and like they raced with my dad back in the 70s the Verbanzik brothers in Ontario they have a dyno shop and a car and the carb shop right next door so I had built a small block Chevy just to run on the dyno and and be able to learn to tune on so we took that engine and went to the dyno and I tuned it sat in the dyno room and tuned it and then I said okay now I'm going to go next door to the carb shop and I'm going to log on to the internet from the carb shop with my dad's laptop into my laptop with go go to my PC and I want to see if I can tune it from over there. It was dial up both sides. So we tried it and it worked. And I'm like, holy shit, this is viable. This is something you could actually do. And to my knowledge, I mean, there might have been other people doing this, but in 2006, if there were, it wasn't many. I didn't know of anybody doing it. So no, I, I mean, I, was, I the, the thing, zero. The thing that made it so much, because coming from the telephone, doing telephone support, you're trying to tell somebody, hey, look at this look at this spot on the screen and it should say this. And invariably it doesn't say that because they're on the wrong screen, but it takes you 10 friggin' minutes to figure that out. Where if you can just log on yourself and touch it on the other end, it's like, man, just, I can do this in two minutes. Boom, boom, boom. And it's done versus trying to t talk somebody through it one step at a time. That's never seen it. So I'm like, this is the way to support stuff. A lot, not only tuning, but this is the way to help people if they need help pulling the data or doing whatever, but I need to get somebody to bite on it. And at that time, I would tell people from time to time, look, I can fly there and tune it, or you could just pay me to do it remotely from here, and then we don't have to pay the airfare and hotel and rail car fees. And they're like, uh, yeah, we'll rather pull it out and just have you here because it's got to be better with you here. So I'm like, okay, all right. So these guys from Chicago, they call me, and I basically, I basically tell them I'm not coming. You have to try this remote tuning thing. I'm not coming there. So they weren't really happy about it, but we tried it. They saw how well it worked, and then they went, this is, we want to do this forever now. This is bitching. And that's what got it started. And so once I had somebody that I, I knew it worked with, then I could re tell everyone, look, I do it with these guys, and it works no problem. I'll come to your shop if you want. So Yeah, you got to have those early adopters, right? That, somebody who it. believes somebody in the concept. Somebody has to bite on it. Yeah. And that's just like, so for my dad, that would have been Shell Oil Company. I mean, he sold it to a few little people here and there, but Shell is the one that really got him into business. And the remote tuning side of it. I know this has been a long detour into this, but no, I just, dude, it's super interesting because it is, man. It's something that you guys, I mean, your dad, kudos, because it's it is to be that far ahead of the curve is it's really hard to fathom, to be honest, to be thinking about you know offering a service basically to anybody via the phone. To have that notion at all to me that long ago is shocking and it's crazy and it just the way the universe has delivered yes. this opportunity for you to kind of carry on yeah. this this notion and this idea and take it to a high level in drag racing it's you see, it's really spectacular you see where though for me it's not that much of a departure because it seems obvious because of what we were already doing with the telephone it's like an extension of that. and honestly listen if we could do what we can do now with technology if we could do that back when we were work doing the car thing in answering the telephone, we could have been twice as successful at getting things right the first time because we could have just simply took it over for the guy on the other end. But it's so the, the other thing that, that happened uh, was in 2007. Actually, it was, it was 2006. And during that time, we were building a car for Rado. And I get this call from someone in the Middle East who tells me, hey, uh, I want you to come to Dubai. I've got a shop and I've got a Supra and I want you to tune it in. You know, uh, actually, they didn't tell me about the Super. That and they told me about their sand race trucks. We got all these sand hill trucks. We race up sand dunes, and they have Motec on them. And we want you to come here for six weeks and tune these cars. And I'm like, you're out of your mind. 
Like, I don't know who the hell you even are. So I'm like, look, I can't go. And they kept, they kept calling me back. And every time I tell them I couldn't do it because I literally couldn't do it. I had a contract with someone here in the States and I didn't want to break that to go over there. Every time they call me back and I tell them, no, they keep raising the price. You know, so eventually, I love when that happens. It's like the best thing in the world. Well, okay. yeah, it's because you don't yeah. care. It's like when you go to buy something, as long as you don't, your heart isn't in it, it's no problem. You can tell them whatever you want and walk away and it's not a problem. Anyway, so I, I literally couldn't go and they made this ridiculous offer to me, uh, you know, to fly me over there first class and put me in a five-star hotel and like limo me go back and forth to the diner or whatever. I'm like, look, I, no matter, it doesn't matter if you were paying me a hundred thousand dollars, I can't come over there. I, I, I don't have the time. So they went away and then I kind of told my story about it for the rest of that year. And everybody I talked to told me, Oh, I forgot to tell you where they were going to give me 10 grand. Right. So they're going to pay me 10 grand together for like a week, which at that, I don't think I'd ever had 10 grand in my hand at one time, you know? So that was, that was a huge number then. Absolutely. And to go there for a week and I'm telling the story and people are like, are you an idiot? Like next time you just fucking go and don't worry about your contract here. And I'm like, nah, that's just not how I want to do it. You know. So 2007 rolls around. I'm at Daytona. We're testing uh, in Grand Am uh, before the 24, and I get this phone call again from a long, weird n- bunch of numbers, sequence of numbers. And this guy calls and he goes, "Hey, um, you tuned my Supra, my street car, uh, in in the states a few years back, and I've got a Supra drag race car now, and I want I want you to come and fly to Bahrain and, and tune it for me. Can you do that?" And um, so I'm like, yeah, okay, well, guess what? Here's what it's going to cost. So I told them the deal that I had, that those guys had offered me the year before thinking, I don't know who this guy is, but we'll see how legit he is. Well, he went, yeah, okay, no problem. When are you going to come? <laughs> so that was the first time I went to Bahrain to work with Ibrahim Kanu on his Drag Race Supra. Um, and I guess maybe I'm getting completely off topic, but where I was going with this was the fact that I went there to Bahrain in 2007 and there was the infrastructure was not what it is today. There was... I mean, if you wanted anything, if you wanted a grade eight bolt, you were ordering it from the States because it didn't exist over there. So I went one time thinking I would never go back. And I told them, listen, if you do this remote tuning thing, I can go home to California and I can still help you when you guys go to the races remotely over the Internet. So they believed in it. I showed them how it would work while I sat there. And when I went home, you know, for the next couple of events, or whatever it was, they they had me on remote connection to the racetrack or to the dyno, and it was it worked awesome, amazing. So then it just became I don't know more normal, and as I promoted the fact that I was doing it, more people started doing it, and then it, and now it's almost people call and ask specifically, do you do remote tuning? Like yeah, yeah it's I like a thing now. It's a service that people offer, and I. I mean, I just think it's an interesting thing, and I don't know why I felt so compelled to kick this deal off with that, because it just, I think it kind of sets the stage for the scope of your operation as, you know, here in 2019, and the 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 amount of different things you have your hands on, and I always, I always try to turn these conversations, I end up turning them into some sort of, like, racer self-help type of thing, and <laughs> just to, because you, the, the people that I speak to, I often... It's just amazing the little nuggets they'll kind of drop, sometimes unknowingly, that I'm going, okay, I know literally 50 people that need to hear those words right Right. now. And it it leads me into one of the next things I want to talk about, probably one of the 
most talked about storylines headed out of 2018. One of them was a really unfortunate one, but our mutual friend, dear friend, Danny Rowe, announcing that he was going to make a departure from the sport of drag racing, uh, at least for a little while, take uh, to focus on business overseas. And we are both, you know, you're, you're like in his neck of the woods, and Danny's yep. been a longtime friend of mine, and we were all bummed to hear that he was going to, you know, take a step away. But that left Steve Matusik, his longtime t- uh, teammate, looking for kind of a, a program for 2019 if he was going to get involved with racing or whatever. Simultaneously, Richard Freeman, well-known uh, NHRA Pro Stock team owner, was kind of had been dabbling, and dabbling's shortchanging it, but had been kind of developing a pro-modified program on the NHRA side, quarter-mile legal NHRA pro-mod program, and the stars and moon align, and, and these conversations start to happen, and, and fast forward, I'm really, you know, making this, I'm acting as if this all happened in like 24 hours, but the next thing we know, headlines are all over creation that yourself, Shane T., Justin Elks have joined the Elite Motorsports program, and you're going to spearhead the operation of what amounts to a three-car pro-mod team under Elite's umbrella in Erica Enders, no surprise, Alex Laughlin, and the aforementioned Steve Matusik. And it's crazy to think the way this whole thing kind of continues to expand and who thought there was really much left for you to accomplish. But here you are, an NHRA crew chief in what I would argue is probably the most competitive class in drag racing right now, amongst the most competitive class in drag racing uh, and just like a very popular thing, like everybody's talking about it. There's a lot of eyes on this class. There are people, people fighting to get into these these events. So all that said, I'm just curious. And one of the things I wanted to talk about during all this was you've worked on all sorts of stuff. We talked earlier before we, we got on the air. We, st- we were talking about Formula One racing and IndyCar and the, the sport compact stuff and the land speed stuff. And I'm just curious Maybe if you could, and this is probably a wide-ranging conversation, Shane, so we'll we'll do the dance, however. But I'm just curious, like, has, how much have all those different things, freaking sand drag things, going up hills, all these Supras, all these different clutch cars, automatic cars, big motors, small motors, how much has all that shit, all this experience prepared you for this moment now where you're on, I would say, the grandest stage that exists for door slammer drag racing, tuning three of the you know most you know premier cars in the category well it's you know it's a long it's a long process right so i mean first of all my dad's an auto shop teacher so i was already predestined to have something to do with cars and when your dad's an auto shop teacher um at least in the case of my dad being an auto shop teacher you know i asked him about engine stuff and he taught me stuff uh and you know probably from the time i was uh, 13 or 14 uh, I've started playing around with electronics and electronic fuel injection. And there's a, there's a long backstory to that, but, but leading up to the question you're asking, what really gave me the, the, um, eye-opening experience was working at Motec. I had tuned other things with carburetors and worked on pro mods with Kirk Coons and with John Shelby in the, in the late ni- uh, late eighties and early nineties, you know, with mechanical fuel injection, obviously I wasn't tuning, um, but you know, I was paying attention to what was going on and I understood enough to know what they were doing. Um, and as, as I moved into electronic fuel injection, I don't think I still had a clear picture of exactly how an engine functions. 
but but because of the way electronic fuel injection operates, you can sort of separate each piece out, and then it makes it more clear how each piece contributes to the whole to the whole the whole package of the engine. Uh, and so, in having the opportunity to work on you know, when I worked at Motec, I couldn't, I, I was the tuner for whatever engine management system somebody bought for whatever car it was and whatever kind of racing. You know, I couldn't just say, oh, I want to work on drag race cars or, oh, I only want to work on motorcycles. It was, you know, just like you said, this week, it's a small block Chevy with a with a blower on it in a street driven car. And next week, it's a pro mod car. And then, well, probably wasn't pro mod, but whatever, it would have been some kind of drag race car. And then off to Grand Am for you know, a, a normally aspirated V8 that runs around the racetrack for 24 hours. And then, you know, it's a sand off-road truck and then a boat. So what you start to recognize is the trends and the similarities between all these things. You start going, hey, wow, you know what? Whether I'm working on a drag race engine or an off-road engine or an offshore boat engine, a supercharged engine, a nitrous engine, normally aspirated engine, big inch, small inch, one cylinder, two cylinder, rotary, you know, V12, whatever it is. They all have these same commonalities. Like there's a there's a subset of things that you could literally use from one right in the other, right? And there's some different approaches to uh, running the engines and all different sorts of racing, but there's a bunch of common things. And you wouldn't have that opportunity to know that if you, you know, if all you ever worked on was say, you know, nitrous, 900 inch nitrous pro mod engines, you might think, wow, man, a, a lawnmower engine or a motorcycle two stroke engine must be completely different and operate under a completely different set of, you know, parameters. But at the end of the day, they're all pretty much common and it's all related right. to the laws of physics. And it takes a while to figure that out. But once you do, you realize, well, now I'm not scared to try and do anything. And so that's what really gave me the chance to touch on all those different kinds of things. Now, as time goes on, and I used to be, I used to be really proud of the fact that I could tune, you know, a motorcycle and then go work on some guy's pro street car that had whatever on it and go try and make that work. And it was the challenge of trying to make it work was a lot of fun. But as I'm getting, I think, go ahead. I was just going to, no, I mean, I just think there's this weird thing because that, the, the willingness to experiment and the willingness to like step out on these things because that's when I look around the industry right now and look around our, you know, the kind of tight knit drag racing community, I see people succeeding, whether it's Stevie Jackson, and Billy Stockland, that group there. Yeah. I really point to their willingness to try shit, to apply what they've, you know, had success with with a nitrous car to this yep. supercharged car or try what they've learned here with the on the radial tire in power management terminology. You know, they to try what they've experienced there over here on this big tire car in that that scope, that extended scope, because there's two schools of thought, right? There's one that you jack of all trades. That's in a master of none, none right? I've, yeah. I've thought about that. I go, wow, I wonder if there is a way, if you can get to a point where you're spread so thin, you're working on so many different things, everything looks so different that you really can't become good at any one thing. But I just wonder if drag racing, at least at this level, being that there is what you're saying, like a commonality that exists at the root level, yeah. that maybe it's just slightly different flavors that allows you to become this kind of super master, this sensei, of if you will, thing. because now you're you're a mixed martial artist, right? Instead yep. of just knowing judo yep. or just knowing kickboxing or Mai Tai or jujitsu, you know all this shit and you've been practicing them for a long time. Looking Billy is a perfect 
a perfect example. And Billy is someone that I got the opportunity to work with from being in Qatar, um, but someone who I have huge amount of respect for. And there's a guy who, who does it the same way. He doesn't, his head isn't stuck in, I'm going to do it this way because this is the way it's always been done. Or I, I have to keep doing it this way because I've done it this way before and it worked. He adapts, right? He's like, he knows what the end goal is. And I try to be that way too. Doesn't always work out, but I mean, it's, I just, I won't accept in my head, you know, I got to work with some engineers uh, that had the schooling that I never had when I worked at MoTeC. And what was really awesome, I worked with this guy named Simon Wagner, and he was an engineer. And the thing was, neither one of us had an ego because we both really wanted to learn. So I had experience that he didn't have, and he had schooling that I didn't have. And together, we were way better than either one of us individually because we could look at a problem, and I could tell him from experience what was going to happen. And then he could work it out mathematically or you know, explain it through physics to me. And then I start to understand. So I started thinking more like, you know, an engineer, not all the way like an engineer, but an engineering mindset. And I mean, it's just it's just a series of problems you're trying to solve. And you can't be you can't be stuck in. Well, it has to be this way because that's what that guy said or that's how those guys do it or what. I mean, you will never be better than those guys if you want to just try and do it the way they're doing it. So, you know, I mean, no, it's so it's true. A perfect example of that. And I again, I try to be that way. And, and my cross spectrum of many things I've had my my hand in. I've, I've never had my hand in Formula One or IndyCar, by the way, or NASCAR. Those are above sort of my pay grade, if you want. But well, I don't know about that. But, but it's uh, it those it just looking at what they're doing and appreciating the technology and, and understanding a way that you can take a piece of that and apply it to this other thing. I mean, all the land speed racing stuff I did, I, I didn't start doing Bonneville stuff till about 2008 or nine, but I worked on a bunch of standing mile stuff. And when we went to the very first race that I went to with these, actually the same guys that I remote to with the Viper, we went to Maxton in, I don't even know what must've been 2006. And, and the record uh, overall record was like, I, I don't know, 220 or something like that. And we went 231, I think. With their with their Viper at Maxton, but it's because I said, why are we idling it off the starting line and driving it out there like we're going to get groceries? Why aren't we letting the clutch out on the traction control, you know, and adding <laughs> boost to this thing and letting it be a drag race? I mean, it's still basically a drag race for a mile. So if you're going three mile an hour faster in the middle, it's got to be three mile an hour faster out the back. Now that's not always true, but in that case, we picked up a whole ton. I mean, that car was when I. When it was going low 220s, and we ended up going 231, or it was there, there 233. I can't remember. Anyway, we went way fast for the time, uh, and it was because we started from the starting line instead of starting from like, you know, the top of low gear where it would start making boost. Same thing when we went to the mile in Texas, and I was working with, you know, the guys that are, are now M2K Motorsports with their, and they've just gone 300 miles an hour now with that car. But that car, we started out with it, you know, at 240 and, you know, we pretty quick, quickly went 250 and then 265 and then 270 and then 278. Uh, but all of that was because we were treating it like a drag race and, you know, putting it on the two step, letting the clutch out and letting it ride the traction control out through low gear and all the way down the racetrack and all that stuff. So, you know, you take things from from one type of racing that you do and you realize where they could be useful in a different kind of racing and then. It's like, wow, that works way better. And why, why wouldn't we be doing it on, on this over here too? Now, that, that, that all that worked really good. 
until I got to Bonneville and went like, oh, shit, we can go 225 and a quarter mile with a 3,000-pound car. Going 250 in five miles can't be a problem. Well, guess what? <laughs> it's fucking way slipperier and way harder than you think it is. Because you basically, if you've got more than about a thousand horsepower, you got enough horsepower to spin the tire anywhere you want all the way down the racetrack. So it is way harder than going to the standing mile on asphalt. But I guess that's a different story. Now, it's interesting to me, though, and that's one of the things that has kind of been a hot button issue for me in drag racing, really, in recent years. And I'm curious to get your take on this because you're, you know, you're directly involved with this this situation that I believe is at hand. And it's not all bad. It's a double edged sword. But there's this thing. We've arrived at a time where I'll point to some of these radial tire races. It's as if these radial tire races in the southeast and stuff if 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 a world record isn't set Shane yeah. it's like the race didn't happen we're so sensitive and we're so hyper focused on the numbers that i've often argued that i mean it's kind of part of the reason that i've largely embraced no uh, prep no, racing and, and no scoreboards yeah, in no time racing and stuff like that, because I just I get frustrated because it's like, man, there's more to this. It's side by side competition. It's it's me versus you. There's so many other parts to this that I don't want us to just the pass fail can't be mind shaft conditions, perfect track prep and world record ETs. However, you're a guy who you're kind of like a record hitman. I mean, you get called in by people all around the world, oftentimes very well-to-do people all around the world, and they say to you, hey, I want to take out this record. I want to set this record. And you come in, and you help them do so. And it's crazy to me because, I mean, heck, part of your business is kind of contributing to this issue that I think is, you know, so crazy. But Great. I don't know. There's two, like I said, there's no, no, but there's two sides to it, right? Because part of me goes, hey, if this is what they want to do, I can't fault them, and we've all seen it, man. I literally, in the magazine world, I go to a trade show or I go to a racetrack, and you know everybody wants us to do a story on them, which is super flattering. I mean, that's like it's so flattering. I never thought I'd see the day that that meant so much to people. But the first thing someone tells me, Joe Racer, I've got the fastest stick shift, twenty eight inch tire, naturally aspirated, you know, small block powered. Mustang on the planet Earth. And it's just funny because that that breakdown and having rights to that title, the fastest or the quickest or whatever, that's pretty much like a lifelong mission for everybody. So it's it's hard for me to bag on this whole situation that exists because I've argued on my show that, hey, if you guys want to go land speed racing, go to go to Bonneville, go to Bonneville. That's great. And but at the same time, man, there's two sides to it, because when a record is set or whatever, we all go nuts. Everybody goes insane when the scoreboard flashes and it's some unheard of thing or some barrier gets broken. We all go crazy. But it definitely is a double edged sword. Right. So. So let me put it into perspective for you. Who was do this quickly now? Don't think about it. Don't look it up on the Internet as quick as you can. Tell me who won the world championship in 88 and top fuel. Right. I have no idea. Right. Tell me who was the first in the fours in 88. Uh, Kenny Bernstein. No. Fuck it. Oh. Eddie, it was Eddie Hill. But, Eddie Hill. And it was, yeah, Eddie and it Hill. And first of 300, right? But yeah. yeah. First of 300 was, but those those big numbers, you remember, right? So in those records, those milestones, you can remember them for a long period of time. And man, I'm not taking anything away from people going out there and racing and winning world championships. 
And I want to do that. I've never had, I've never had the opportunity to work on a car where, well, okay, some stuff on the West coast, but nothing on a big giant scale, you know, nothing where we've gone and won NHRA championships or things like that. The thing of it is that I, that, for, okay. So I, I do agree with you. Look, there's, it's, we're way, we're hypersensitively focused on record numbers and speed records, but you know what? Those things grab headlines. And, and the guy that I worked for in Bahrain was able to understand that, uh, probably better than anyone. And I mean, in the, in, in the import racing scene, it was literally almost dead and no one paid any friggin' attention to import racing until we started running close to the world record at the time it was like 626, I think from gas motorsports in Australia. And from the time of going 626 into the first and the fives with a 597, there was a huge, all of a sudden bunch of interest paid all over the world. Cause we had people from all different countries trying to get to that, that's a good point, first, man. Right? So you have people paying attention to those things, and if you tell them, "Hey, by the way, we won the championship again in Bahrain, BDRC, you know, 2008 champion and whatever," like ain't nobody cares about that. But when you it's say, "It's true, man," I mean, and I think maybe, maybe I'm just Bahrain, salty. You yeah, get, maybe you get I'm in, just salty. You get in the top ten runs of that year because you went 597 in Bahrain, not because you won the championship. You know, and yeah, so his I mean, if you look at the stuff that goes goes viral, like a drag racing's version of viral, right, gets tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of views. You're right. right. I mean, it's it's never somebody like telling the story of the eight rounds of racing at the million or whatever. It's the guy who went five forty or whatever at two hundred and seventy mile an hour. Well, firstly, it's the car that flips over the fence that gets the absolute well, yeah, that, most that views. Yeah. And then, yeah. secondly, it's going to be the barrier breaker. But but he was he was right. And so for me personally. Because honestly, for me, the racing gets in the way of me making <laughs> the right decision for performance on the race car. Because my gut instinct, my gut natural reaction is I, I want to try to make the car every time we go to the starting line go as fast as it can possibly go. And I don't mean fast. I mean quick and fast, right? Right, right. So I, I, I want to look at it and go, okay, we missed here and here's where we can fix it now. You have to get in the racing mindset and say, well, wait a minute. That's risky. What do we actually need in order to beat the guy next to us? Well, I don't fucking care. I just want to run faster you know, and quicker than we just ran. Yeah, but if we spin the tire, we don't win. But I don't care about winning. right? So in my – I have taken – it's taken a long time for me to – and I'm now 45, but it's, I've been doing this nearly 20 years. So it's, it, it's taken a long time for me to throttle myself. It, it's still hard. My, like I said, my gut – natural instinct is go for all of it every time it's taken me a long time to learn to throttle myself down and pay attention to what's important particularly with whoever it is you're working for you know when you're working for a guy who wants to see records you, you can afford to go out there and try for him and fail because he doesn't care if he wins the race he just wants to get a record so he gets lots of you know lots of exposure all over the world for doing what he's doing if you're going out there trying to win a championship, trying to be low ET and top speed every time you go down the racetrack is not a good way to do that unless – Well, it's you know. it's so interesting, man, because it is literally like – I mean we teach this in sales. I teach this to salespeople all the time that you basically need to reflect back to your client. Like they'll tell you exactly what they want and you need to go to work giving it to them, right? right? And it's it's the same in this game and it's – it is interesting because you mentioned like the Eddie Hill thing and the Kenny Bernstein thing and, you know, I I use that reference, the 300 mile per hour one uh, specifically right. all the time because nobody remembers who won the Gators. Right, you know, but no everybody one, real, remembers who went 30170. Yeah, everybody remembers <laughs> Kenny Bernstein, the king of speed. And it's this, 
And it's great, it, but it is a, a bit of a conundrum because as we get further and further along in the evolution of our sport, those moments, they're fewer and further between. And I guess that makes them even more special, right? I mean, it actually yeah. adds, you know, sizzle to what we're talking about here. But it really is an interesting time. And I, and I tell this story sometimes about I remember going racing with my dad when we were I was really young. It was like Father's Day weekend. And. We were racing Comp Eliminator. My dad had this car, a tube chassis, a Willie Rails Pontiac Firebird with a small block and a Lenko in it. Naturally aspirated, all aluminum 434, really trick deal. And it ran like 5.0s in the eighth mile, high 490s. And we went to this race, and we went to the final, and my dad broke out, and, uh, and we lost, right? So this little stick shift bracket race type of deal we were at. And... I remember going down to pick him up on the four-wheeler. We had like a 220 Kawasaki Bayou, which was like my favorite thing about going racing, actually, is me <laughs> getting to ride this freaking four-wheeler around. So I'm burning down to the big end, you know, and I'm bummed out. We lost, son of a bitch, you know. And I go down there, but we'd run like a 496, which I, I think at the time was the best run we'd ever made. Yep. And I get down there, and my dad is like over the moon. Yeah. I couldn't, and I'm like, why are you so happy? <laughs> He's like, there the ain't force. a motherfucker here that doesn't know we're here. They yeah. all know we're here. We got the fastest shit in 10,000 miles. Ain't nobody can run with that thing. And I'm like, whoa, you are like really excited. And we just lost in the final, dude. And But it just, it showed me at an early age that that was what it was about. When, when the Buck Brothers went drag racing, if we lost in the first round because we broke out by a second, that was victory. I mean, literally, if we made three time runs and went up there in the first round and broke out by three tenths because the car picked up or we made a change or whatever, that was victory. Because all we wanted to accomplish was remind everybody on the property that we had the fastest shit there. Right. <laughs> it was well, so funny. I mean, look, we just had a recent example of this. I mean, do you think we would have been number two on the NHRA Fast Five whatever highlight reel from Houston? If we hadn't gone 260 in round two, we just we Great just lost point. round two. We would have been on the trailer, and they'd have been, yep, uh, they they qualified, and they were on the trailer. But because the thing went 260, it made it made it was noteworthy. So I'm not saying that like, oh, we need to go out and try and get the speed record every time, and that's not what we're trying to do. It just sort of happened. But but the point is that it made the friggin' highlight reel because of it. You know, so yeah, so it, there, and and this was what the guy in Bahrain was able, you know, Ibrahim Kanu. Econo Racing, this is what he was able to recognize, was like, hey, man, people pay attention around the world when we do something noteworthy. They don't give a shit how many races we win over here. So that it's was very what interesting. And I don't know that I I mean, I guess I recognize it now that we're talking about it. Yeah. But it, I find it very interesting that the the E-Canoe team had the foresight to to see that, like, go, hey, strategically, if we set records and break barriers, this is going to elevate our profile. And I would argue that they're one of the most visible racing teams like in the door slammer sector by a by a considerable margin. I mean they're a highly visible team, very well known. You look at any other social media accounts and they are very impressive. Yeah. And it directly correlates to this record setting. Well so th- there was a multiple things that added into that. Like obviously EK liked the fact that uh you know he got recognition, but it did a couple of things for him. First of all, his father uh, wasn't really keen on the whole racing thing. He doesn't understand like why. Why would you want to spend all this money and what do you get out of it? Like what's what? A, what's the reward? But when he could go to his dad and show him, you know, Drag Illustrated, which is a global uh, drag racing community forum, 
and that they've written something about his team from Bahrain setting a record, you know, that gave him credibility with his with his dad. And and more than that, for his entire country of Bahrain, you know, he was putting his country on the map. People wouldn't even have known the name had it not been for the things that we were doing over there. So it, it was a huge thing for him, almost more important than even just he felt like he was doing something not only for himself, but for his country while we were over there racing. And he really was. Well, he, he it's very interesting, man. And it leads me to a great next question here is wh- how far do we see this stuff going? I mean, right now we're seeing even with NHRA legal cars, we're seeing mid five sixties. Um, we're seeing 200, you know, re- routinely encroaching and exceeding 260 miles per hour in the quarter mile. And this is with legal cars. So when we get like kind of put on your wild imagination cap, what do you see in the foreseeable future here for, you know, outlaw door slammers and, and these quarter mile, these kind of exhibition type of situations that exist out on the West Coast, a couple places um, over, of course, over in Bahrain at BD. Uh, what is it? Bahrain International Circuit. Yeah, uh, these different places. What, what do you see? Does this I mean I've had a couple off the record conversations with some high level guys, some tuners and some racers, and they've kind of got their eye on this potentially 300 mile per hour door car thing do you think that's a a reality absolutely i mean me me and petty and i were talking about it last year when we were racing over in in bahrain you know and we we were only running eighth mile but but that's when we ran the 537 at 278 with the with the lexus um and before we made that pass uh you know it's i'm guilty of this and probably so are most people who are out there tuning on race cars you're thinking about the computer. You're thinking about the car. How do you make it faster? It doesn't really enter into the equation, the safety of the person that's in it. And you don't even really consider that until something goes wrong. And then you're like, what, why am I this stupid? Why, why am I what being I a part of this? So, you know, the thing of it is we went 278 with Alexis. Um, I think something came, the window came out and got in the chute and the chute didn't come out properly. And Khalid Mohammed, the driver, skidded it to a stop at the far end of the racetrack, knocked both front tires off because they were locked up, uh, and tapped the wall with it a little bit. But it was like that was your wake-up call. And I told I told EK at that point, like I told him, listen, <laughs> that's we're done going quarter mile. We're not going quarter mile. This is too dangerous. We don't. We haven't had this thing's not been in a wind tunnel. We haven't tested like we don't know if the chassis is up for this. You know what I'm saying? Like this is a, this is stupid. We're going to we're going to keep doing this. And at some point, our luck's going to run out. I, I don't think that that it makes any sense. The risk is not worth the reward. Having said that, performance wise, that car didn't even have a lockup in it. So I'm sure with a lockup, 290 would be no problem with that thing. Right. And obviously with more turbo that had 94s on it. So if we could run 106s or maybe 110s and have a lockup and just go see how fast you can go, there ain't no doubt it'll go 300. Again, me and Petty both talked about it. I think I would say that probably 50s at 300 is not out of the question. Maybe even fours if you give somebody enough time to figure out how to get it all on the ground. You know, in the, and it's in the crazy. I mean, because time. It, and I think that that exists out there. I really do. I mean, I. I will be shocked personally because I understand exactly what you're saying and that's something we harp on a lot at Drag Illustrated is is safety and we preach these things a lot 
and a lot of times those do get thrown everybody this is something I've seen a lot in 2019 already but the intoxication that comes with not literal with you know drugs or alcohol but oh, the, the, into- the dopamine yep. intoxication yep. that comes from and it, it's not it's, it's not like a I'm kind of a student of you know human behavior and I pay attention to this stuff especially in this social media age and whatnot and you start to look at like what feeds people and you can see it in their eyes I'll go to some of these events and they'll They'll have set a record or they'll they'll have been they're on the cusp. Right. And there's been a lot of examples of this in 2019. I've saw it in Marcus Burt whenever they went 360 with a four down in Valdosta with that nitrous car. And it was this shot heard around the world moment. And this isn't like a negative thing to say. This is just fact. You look at Marcus and he was having a literal physiological response to this. And it was like. And that sounds like negative, but it's not. I mean, it's adrenaline, no, no. it's dopamine, it's, it's all these things. It's totally, and, it's totally true. And like, I almost brought that up earlier when you were talking about, you know, all the travel I did as a kid. I almost brought up that, you know, I, I basically was a racing junkie. I mean, I absolutely. lived on the, yeah, I know it sucks to go to the airport and get on an airplane and fucking stay up late and get up early and sleep in a shitty hotel room. But, dude, when you wake up, you get to go do, all you have to do is keep in your mind what it was like to have a regular job and how much that sucked compared to the shittiest day at the racetrack. It, you know, if you keep that in your mind, in the back of your head, it's like you're on a constant high of going, oh, now I get to go work on this, now I get to go do this. And I got, I was fortunate to work with a lot of a lot of successful teams and learn from them and be part of their success. And sometimes in this game, you're standing there on the starting line when something amazing happens and it's not, you're not entirely directly involved with the reason why it happened, but you get the credit anyway. And sometimes something happens that's fucking shit hate you hate and you get all the credit for that. So you got to kind of take the good with the bad in this thing and never get too high, never too low. But I'm telling you, like literally even still Erica first round in in uh, Houston, she wins first round, goes 575. I've got the shakes. Okay, I'm like I can't hold still. I've got goosebumps on my arm like I've got I could feel the hair standing up on the back of my neck because we just did. Something was an obviously a goal of the whole team to tick off to get obviously qualify and then went around and then you know it, we keep moving up the ladder but I mean to achieve that goal at that time and see that happen and like it was just there was a absolute physiological response in my body yeah, the hair standing up on my neck talking about it you know and it's yeah. it's true it, it's so true and I think sometimes we don't maybe give those things because there's there's two things that I'll say there is that. One, I got to tell a little funny story that I think you'll find interesting and it'll give us a great segue. But I do think that that is so strong. That physiological response is so strong and it is so intoxicating and it's so alluring that it will be in my mind. When I look at the Drag Illustrated Top 8, which kudos to uh, Brett Kepner, who organizes for this for us every yep. issue, which is a tremendous amount of work, documents all the changes. It's really unbelievable. And I, I have a hard time even comprehending how he's able to so passionately maintain this. But I mean, I look right here and I see number one in the unlimited turbocharged pro mod eliminator, quickest drivers, Callum Muhammad, 578 or 537 with a nine, excuse me. Um, And then, then I look at the the top speed, number one, Callum Muhammad, 278, 79. And I think there's no way and and it'll be you guys. It'll be someone else because someone, they're going to try to do this. I feel like that's one of the last 
So I don't know what's going to have to happen as far as the safety aspects and testing or whatever. But I feel there's this carrot dangling out there that's not getting a lot of talk. There is one of the teams you work with. Uh, what's the sorceress, right? Yep. It's kind of it's a it's a very it's a stated goal, right? Yep. That it's hanging out there. Yep. But I really think that this is probably going to be that moment. And I hope that nothing happens negative. You know, I hope there's no bad. I hope everything is safe and sound and we're able to, you know, attack this goal on the horizon as safely as possible. But I think that that allure is so strong. And I think that moment will be so significant that it's going to there's going to be some people get the fever. We're too close for it not to happen. Yeah. So, so excited to have you as part of this deal. And like I've been wanting to do these things because one of my biggest regrets in this whole drag illustrated drag racing life I've lived for like my entire life, actually, but professionally for like almost 15 years now is so many awesome conversations that no one else ever hears. Ever hears. It breaks yeah. my heart. I'm like, oh, my God, yeah. I wish we would have recorded this. <laughs> oh, and it's it it's terrible. And there's also the part of it is that so many times we do big interviews with people and. Some of it makes it to print, but we're limited real estate wise on the pages of the magazine where it's like, okay, we've got 3,500 words here in an eight page section. What are we going to cut? What are we going to leave out? And there's that decision so hard. So the the long form nature of this podcast, I'm super excited about it. I'm glad to have you be a part of this, Shane T. So tell me, we just talked about record setting and all the different things that you've been a part of and, and kind of. That's a really fun conversation to have, actually, and I think we could probably spend the rest of our lives talking about how people behave and how drunk everybody gets on the record setting. But you touched on giving clients what they're asking for. And in 2019, really what you've been tasked with is going out and competing for a championship in NHRA Pro Mod, arguably, like we've said, the most competitive door slammer category in the world. What have you made of this experience so far, working alongside Justin Elks, who I know you've been close with for quite a while, working alongside Richard Freeman, Jake Harrison, Mark Ingersoll, that whole brain trust there to get these three cars out to the races? I know it's been a a barn burner of a deal just to get to the first race of the season in Gainesville. And while you guys haven't hasn't been um, I'm sure there's plenty of room for improvement in your eyes, the critical eyes of a crew chief. You have to be happy with how far this program's come in a relatively short amount of time, right? No, I mean, look, we're uh, look, we're obviously we're optimistic, and we, you know, if you ask us what we're trying to do, of course, yes, we're trying to go qualify number one and win every race, but we're also realistic. We this is going to be a multi-year deal, and it's not going to be a one year and you're gone kind of thing. We need to build a repertoire. Uh, and the thing that is with the experience of everybody on the team and, and the knowledge level, just like you said, of the marketing or and, 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 you know, like working with Justin and, you know, all those guys combined together, any one of them, if you gave them the task of, of running, you know, one of these cars down the racetrack would, would be successful all of us together. It's like, dude, how can we possibly go wrong with this? Uh, but we need to build ourselves a repertoire because none of us actually have NHRA pro mod experience. I've worked on pro mods, but not in NHRA and not at NHRA tracks. You know, I've worked on stuff in PDRA and all the stuff in the Middle East and cars on the West Coast, but that's not NHRA. And th- so what we have is a huge knowledge base, but nobody knows the exact right answer. So it's a matter of being able to rely on the resources on the team of it, pieces of information that can help put that 
put that playbook together so that you can go to the starting line round one and say, hey, you know what? It's going to take to win. It's going to take, you know, a 578 to win. And we know how to go 578. Right now, we don't know how to do that for sure. We're learning. Right. And we're in some cases, we're exceeding even our own expectations. You know, like the, the, the obviously the goal right off the bat was like, look, let's just try to qualify at every race. Whatever happens from there is icing on the cake. And then it's and we have these discussions about, you know, trying to build this database up and have information so that, you know, at some point we can really start showing what we can do. But once you get to the racetrack and once you get in racetrack mode and like debuting at Gainesville, where it's like all of a sudden the 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 thing goes like a tenth of a second, the whole field faster than you expected it to be. And now it's like, man, let's try to move what we can to try to get in the show and let's try to qualify. And I mean, that, that keeps happening, but I think I would say, at least for me personally, I don't, I don't know that we could realistically do any better than we have done. We're three races in three races in, we've managed to qualify two of the cars at, at two of the races. So we didn't qualify any of them at Gainesville, but we were number one alternate. So it's not like we were totally we didn't we didn't make ourselves look like idiots uh, when we when we went to Gainesville and you know we we won a round in Houston and at Houston I was saying man guys look at the level that we've achieved in a short amount of time I mean if we keep up this level of success you know we go to we go to round two next race in four races we're in the final and five races from now we win a race you know if we go from not qualifying to winning a round and then. And realistically, man, they just went to Charlotte and went all the way to effectively what was the final. I had to laugh. I sent Erica a text. I said, you got to be kidding. You're number nine in points. It's insane, number, man. I know it's only three races, dude. I get it. But it's still like I don't think there's anything for us to be ashamed of. What we've accomplished, I'm very proud of. Um, you know, the, the record things are are nice, but realistically, they don't do us any good as far as what we're trying to do, building information for, you know, being able to go down the racetrack and, and, and have that, again, that playbook, I keep referring to that same thing, but I mean, to race successfully for me, like on the West coast with that Thornton's car and extreme pro mods, and, you know, we basically, we've, we've run the car for like three years now, or maybe this is our fourth year. We have made probably 200 runs down the racetrack in multiple different types of conditions. So at this point, instead of it being a deal where like, well, the track is this, I wonder if it'll take this. Man, I go out on the track and I go, okay, the track is this. Go back through my notes. When did we run in this condition before with this type of setup and what did we run? Okay, we ran 582. Fine. Then the track will hold a 582. Put a 582 in the car. And I know what to put in the car to go 582. And then we go to the starting line and then it goes 582. And it's like, that's what it's supposed to be. But that's how you can win. You can't win if you're going to the starting line every time, taking a gamble and trying to guess at what is going to take to win and you know, what the track will hold. And those guys in pro stock, man, they have this so down. They, they have formulas, you know, Justin's got formulas for like, just type all this stuff in and it spits out the right information to be able to go run down the racetrack. And that's what we need. We need that level in pro mod. And that's what like guys like Billy Stockland, you see walking, I always tease him, man, because he's old school, but I love the guy, but I mean, he's, he's walking around with a notepad and he's writing shit down and homeboy's got a trapper and packed full. Yeah. Packed full of notes. It's impressive. His note taking, but but that's, that's the level that it takes. That's what it takes. And so for me, you know, I'm more tech techie. Like I want to fucking build an app where I can just take my iPhone and type, like it just takes the data and then it just tunes the fucking car and I can just stand (laughs) there starting line and decide what number to tell it to run. And it just runs that. Right. But it's the, but but uh, it takes that level of dedication and 
And that level of knowledge, and I would say that there is probably no one running NHRA Pro Mod that isn't got that level of knowledge to back themselves up with to go be successful. And so you have like you're not going to, no matter how good you think you are, you're not going to come there and just go right to the front. It's going to take some time building up. I keep going back to the playbook, but I mean, you you, you got to build up that playbook and that's what we're trying to do. So uh, dude, I'm totally stoked, man. Honestly, I think it's gone way. It certainly could have gone worse. Let me put it that way. And you know, we're learning and we're making some mistakes along the way, but it takes, it takes time to figure stuff out. I mean, thing is we didn't just, we weren't a team. We weren't a pro mod team that debuted a new car or even three new cars in Gainesville. We are a brand new team with brand new people brand new cars, brand new tools. I mean, we have guys that know how to work on cars, but they don't know how to work on the pro mod cars they're working on because they've never worked on them before. Sure. Anybody could figure out that you need to take these bolts out to get the transmission out, you know, and take the drive shaft out. But there's a method you learn working on a car, just like a mechanic learns in a shop. Hey, guess what? I get paid by the hour. So I get paid, you know, by by the by the time that the book says I'm going to get paid to do this job, the faster I can do it, the more money I can make. Well, in that case, in in racing, the faster you can do it, the sooner you're ready for the next round. And when it comes time to be, you know, ready to go in less than an hour, all those things pay dividends. So these guys are learning how to what's the right way and what wrenches you need. And, you know, it, everybody on the team is making lists every time we go to the races of how we can be better. And what's awesome about it is like Richard gives us the the autonomy to be able to say, you t- guys tell me what you need and I'm going to provide you with, you know, what you need to be successful. So, dude, it's not it's not just like, oh, we might need these kind of tires that's going on, too. But there's shit like how do we set the pit area up better so that we can work more efficiently? And that's coming from everybody. That's coming from guys like you know, like Alan Lindsley, they're working on the, on the, on the, on Erica's car, you know, and the guys that are working on Alex's car, we're all trying in every way we know how to come up with a way to be better, faster, more efficient. And that's A to Z. And that there's, there's nothing more exciting than to be a part of that. It's cool to watch, man. I'm curious, what has been the biggest surprise for you as you've delved into NHRA national event competition? the track because you know these guys were telling me this whole time like man you've never seen these tracks or like they don't prep them anymore so there's no bite so they're nothing like what you used to and you know it's gonna be crap when you go over there and we went and tested in valdosta and they're like dude don't get used to this kind of track this is way better than what you're gonna see in gainesville and we went up there for q1 in gainesville and i went and walked on the track i'm like what this isn't that bad what are you talking what are you guys talking about like this is for me on the West Coast, I go 580 on this on the West Coast. This is this is like this is pretty good. And they said, well, it, it is a little bit good, but I mean, it's it's not normally like this. And other than having to run behind the fuel cars and the funny you know funny car stuff and run on the clutch dust or if your first pair out or something like that, the track has been killer at all three races and the conditions have been killer. Not every single round, but I mean. For the most part, I would say that the performance of the entire group is ahead of where we expected it to be. I mean, I don't know what the average ET is after Charlotte. I haven't looked, but I think after Houston and uh, Gainesville, the average winning ET is something like 571 or 572. You know, so you got to run at least that number 
and even then you're probably not going to win because you're going to run up against Billy Stockland going 564 next to you. But, you know, if you want to have a shot, you've got to at least hit that number. And that's the key is being able to know what is this going to take? You play in the odds. You know, it's like what on what on average is it going to take to win against who we're racing and how do we figure out how to hit that number and then match the track conditions. But the biggest surprise for me has been that the track has been, in my opinion, better than 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 we expected it to be. It's that's interesting to hear because that's definitely one of the things that I've seen personally. I always kind of you know, and I don't mean this like disparagingly, but I would chuckle to myself sometimes when I would see someone from the NHRA Pro Mod ranks go test at like a PDRA race, and I would be a little fearful for them, you know, because they're going to yeah. go make probably a career best run at the PDRA race because Tyler Cross know that whole squad first class they know what they're doing and they provide their racers arguably the best prep surface there there is to to be found in drag racing so you go test there and then you go back to like an nhra race in the fall in vegas or or somewhere in the summer and the thing you put it on the two-step and drop the bomb on it and it doesn't go a foot i mean it's like on ice and it's always been interesting to see that i will say you're right i've talked to a ton of different crew chiefs from you know the top fuel ranks on down to even some sportsman racers who have said there seems to have been a shift maybe some middle ground is being found as far as providing a a, a quality racing surface a safe fast quality racing surface in the nhra i'm curious your perspective on one of the things that have been an interesting storyline has been pro mod qualifying in the nhra world short a couple outliers it's really the only pro level category where a big big story exists in simply qualifying who's going to qualify and one of the things that i've been talking about offline has been just how insane q1 is because you think i mean there's obviously a lot of pressure and excitement for q4 because who's in who's out who's going to get bumped out what's the bump going to ultimately be there's a lot of excitement in that moment but i think as far as importance q1 in that NHRA Pro Mod series, and shout out to the the guys at E3 Spark Plugs and JNA Service for for keeping this deal running for so long and 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 giving us this opportunity to race. But how important? And I'm curious as a, as a tuner, how how hard on you is that moment? Knowing because we're you're exactly right. I think I'm not trying to get ahead of myself, but I look toward the fall, those St. Louis races and stuff like that, and I'm thinking you're probably going to have to run a 575 in like Q1 to feel comfortable. Right. So, you know, it goes back to what I was just saying about the racetrack. I mean, the first, the first three races have largely in qualifying been the home run contest, the home run derby. It's instead of being like, okay, let's go up there and let's make runs and let's go down the racetrack. It's like everybody's swinging because you have to, I mean, how could you imagine? Like I I thought we, the thing is we ran good enough to have qualified anywhere last year when we ran Gainesville, it's just that the entire field picked up a 10th, you know, so we were on the outside looking in when we went to Houston, you know, right off the bat, we ran pretty good with Erica's car and you know, it's, it's just all the cars just get so quick. And it's, again, it's, it's nothing like I expected in qualifying again, dude, it's like the home run derby. And then race day comes around and you know, you really can't, you really can't back it off any, I mean, you, you got to go up there and try and guess right for the racetrack. But the bitching part of it is obviously the hard part is that the field is so tight. You know, we've like whatever, 600s between number one and number 15. I think Erica ran like a 78 with a six and Alex went 77 with a nine. And that was the difference between 15th and ninth. So it's super tight, super competitive. 
super hard to get into it uh, and makes you really feel like you've accomplished something because you've got guys that are, you know, these are legends in the sport that are going home on Saturday because they're not in, but you've managed to get some cars in the show. So, you know, obviously that feels good. Um, but the thing, the thing, the thing about it is, is that that then sets up for the race that realistically everybody has a chance because the number 16 guy is only six hundredths behind the number one guy. And if the number one guy screws up a little bit and maybe he's late and the number 16 guy is on the tree, he wins. So it's almost better because everybody has a shot. Even, even though, you know, it's like, it's, we've seen that the, the, the domination of the two or three guys that have kind of been to the final every time. But I mean, it's, it's real. I mean, you have a chance. Oh, you saw Erica take out the number two guy, right? In round one in Houston. So that's I, I a think- perfect, perfect segue there, Shane, as we kind of uh, move into this NHRA segment. The thing that I found very interesting, and this is a, a relationship that I've seen quickly develop between yourself and Steve Matusik, yourself and Erica Enders, and yourself and Alex Laughlin, the entire team. But I want to talk specifically about your relationship with drivers. I see you. As someone, it's been cool to see how quickly you become invested, and that's. I'm just curious about the the how you feel about that and what it's like to be working with this this cast of characters right now. Because I have argued on many occasions that I think Erica is most assert, most certainly the the greatest female race car driver of all time, and I believe that she is amongst the best drivers of all time in drag racing i mean i think she is as good behind the wheel of a race car as there is and i'm just curious and i and i also have a a, i'm a big fan of of steve matusik this is no surprise and certainly of alex laughlin what's it like working with these guys and is that something that happened you find happen i mean you're a lovable guy shane that's no big surprise but do you (laughs) does that happen a lot i mean or do you are you ever like surprised by how quickly i mean you you talk about these guys you've been racing with forever and ever and ever, Ed Thornton and the list goes on, Kurt Coons. I mean, but these are some people. Does this happen to you a lot? Do you fall in love fast? <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, I guess so. I mean, <laughs> I love at first sight. Hey, I married my wife, love at first sight. I saw her one day and I'm married to her now. And that was it. But <laughs> so maybe that is a pattern in my or a quirk or I don't know what you'd call it. And if it's something good or something bad in my personality, but so look, it, it's it's interesting. Those three drivers are completely different. You've got Steve Matusik, who in my mind is the engineer, and he wants to know about everything we're doing on the car. Because honestly, I, I'm not even if we told Steve he couldn't drive anymore, I'm not sure he wouldn't just keep showing up. He is ex- excited in the pit area to talk about what we're doing and why we're doing it, and what you know what he thinks, what he can offer from his perspective in the seat. So there's Steve and he wants to know the ins and outs of all of it. Right. And then he goes up there and he does whatever he does on the racetrack. And then there's Alex who I I'll, I'll be honest, man. Alex is an unbelievable as a driver. Like he, you, that dude could drive. I've worked with drivers. Like <laughs> I worked with Moatat in the, in the middle East and he would get in and out of four or five different kinds of cars. And I was amazed that he wouldn't screw that up because they're so different. One's a clutch nitrous car. Then he's in a six cylinder, you know, automatic and right. So the driver that can that can adapt and not get screwed up in that situation is it's pretty amazing. But dude, like you watch Alex go get in a Mountain Motor Pro Stock car and then haul ass right back to the starting line, get in his NHRA Pro Mod car. I mean, we were testing uh, at at Valdosta, and he went to roll the car into the beams, and you know, I can't exactly remember what happened, but I know that uh, things didn't work out right as far as staging the car. I can't remember if something was wrong with the tree or whatever, but he stopped, backed up, and like put it back in gear, 
rolled back up, went through the sequence again, put it right in the beam. Some other stupid shit happened, and he didn't react to whatever the stupid shit was. I mean, something with the tree happened, something that would have he should have screwed up, and he didn't. He had a piece. He's his head is in the game enough of what's going on and how the car works. He's ahead of the car, so when the car does something, he catches it. I mean, dude, he is he is really, really, really a good driver, a huge asset uh, to anybody uh, in any team, and I'm really happy to be able to work work with him, Erica. I mean, there's a reason why she's a two-time pro stock champion. She is constantly like wanting to know how, how can I do better? Like how, what, what can I do that? How can I do to, what can I do to make the job that I'm doing better for you guys? How, how can I, you know, what can I do to get my reaction times better? How do you want me to stage the car? And it's, it's interesting for me um, because ProMod is not something that she's, that she's used to. You know, she's she. You put her in the pro stock car and close her eyes, and she could do and reach everything and knows where everything is. In a pro mod car, she really has her head. She's really thinking a lot more, um, because she she doesn't have the muscle memory from doing it for you know however long, six or seven years. But dude, there's no doubt. I mean, she has the drive to be good, and it's really kind of cool that right now she's the one having the success. You know, it's like a, a nice confidence builder for her to come into pro mod and be able to, you know, kind of compete. And she wants to be like, every time she comes back, man, I need to work on my lights. Like, you know what? Okay. But we need to work on the car too. So it's all going to evolve together. And, you know, the advantage of working in multiple different kinds of genres of racing and what you realize is that the driver, no matter how good they are, and man, I've worked with some amazing, amazing drivers in the 24 hours of Daytona and and uh, some of the IMSA and, and a Grand American Road Racing Series and obviously some of the drag race guys. But I mean, the guys that are really, really, really good, um, no matter how good they are, the more things you take away from their worry, worry zone, okay? So the the more things you take out of their control that they don't have to think about, the better they get at doing the job they're supposed to do. And I learned this working with, you know, uh, amateur drivers because I didn't work with pros and, and I thought it was just amateur drivers, but pros are the same way. And it comes down to human, you know, hu- human physiologically. I mean, uh, phys- physiology, uh, a, a human being and a human's brain, even though we like to say we multitask and we, we don't multitask, we are a series processor. We go through step, 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 step. We might stop, do something else and do another step, but we cannot multitask. We can't do two things at once. We stop one to do the other quickly and go back. And so when you take things away from the driver that they don't need to worry about anymore, it gives them more processing power to focus on the things they do have to do and they do a better job of it. Absolutely, man. And that's, that's across the board. So, and I, I, t- I literally beat that drum all the time because I, I am this big fan that or a big believer that multitasking is a farce, right? I mean, it's, it's this thing that people really pride themselves on, but you're exactly right. I mean, you just have some people maybe have a slightly better ability to, to flip back and forth from one thing to the next. But I would argue that you're, you're not doing either of those things at the capacity, at the level you could be. And I think that you're going to see this with Erica and Alex, and I'm already seeing it and Steve – but in, and Steve here in time uh, as the car gets sorted out, because when they start to develop some confidence, that self-belief perspective too, the, in that confidence that they know the car is going to do what it's supposed to do. So yes. now the pressure has shifted and it's on them. I think that you've got a group of people there 
that that rise to the occasion. I've seen Erica do it a lot. I think Alex is perfectly capable of it. And I mean, we saw him do it earlier this year in February at Donald Long's Lights Out event. I mean, he he, yep. he had to be better. He had to be the better driver. And he rose to the occasion, performed, and it was a, a masterful performance, I feel, as a driver. And I also think there's this thing that happens with Alex, and this is, I'm kind of switching gears here unintentionally, but there's also like a learning how to win process and a like what you have to do internally, what things, what routines you have to create. Because I see, and I see teams kind of figure that out. You know, I, I see teams have these breakthrough moments, and all of a sudden, hey, we know how to do this. We know how to, the steps that are required, and it sounds simpler maybe than it actually is, but there is some simplicity in just understanding the process, developing the confidence required to to have those breakthrough moments. And I just didn't want this whole conversation to come and go without identifying what's going on in the NHRA world, especially with your involvement. And it's been an exciting thing to see. I know you were super excited, and you made a post on Facebook that I thought was pretty cool that you were talking about being on the starting line at Gainesville with like yeah. car with a dog in the hunt, a couple of dogs in the hunt, you know, and yeah. being directly involved, being invested, racing side by side. That was uh yeah, that was a special moment to even watch from afar. And I'll tell you, there was another special moment, and I'm going to use this to, to move on to the next topic and, and get a couple more things here before I cut you loose. I know you've got things to do. you probably got to dial up yes, a sir. supercomputer in Dubai. But I'm curious, <laughs> one thing that I saw as a special moment was in Houston, Texas, when I saw you busting apart a torque converter uh, and tearing it down into multiple pieces. And I just found it interesting because I do believe there is a and I don't know that it's entirely a myth, but I do believe there's a notion that exists that the keyboard jockeys such as yourself do not have, you know, hands on ability. And I was just stunned because your willingness to, like, take this torque converter apart and go through all these bearings and look at the stator and you're going through this with a level of expertise that I found. I was surprised. I didn't know that I was going to see that out of out of you. And I'm curious if you could just touch on. I mean, I know that you started dabbling in mechanic and in wrenching on high-level race cars at an early age, like as a, as a teenager, 13, 14 years old, and have, of course this happens over time, but was it earlier than that? Was it in Dad's garage, or where has this high-level yeah. high level mechanical understanding come from? Yeah, I mean, look, my dad was building a 32 Roadster in the garage when I was a kid, so I used to go out there and, you know, it started out, I just rearranged his tools all in the wrong drawers for him, and then, you know, take his files and try and saw try and use the file to saw the bench you know the leg of the bench down to try and <laughs> shorten the bench up for him and all that kind of stuff but i got a little bit older you know he'd obviously like go get me the five eights and then i'd go in there and try and find five eights but i always sort of had that mechanical aptitude i'm sure because of the environment that i grew up in and you know like i before junior dragsters existed i decided when i was about 16 and finally had a job that i was going to build my own <clears throat> miniature dragster there's a guy on the West Coast named Dave Tuttle that had built a miniature dragster with a motorcycle engine in it, and I just thought that was the coolest thing ever. So I built one with a what eventually ended up having a 250cc dirt bike motor in it. I went and ran it to Carlsbad, and so so my so you know I taught myself how to gas weld, and my dad saw what I was doing and he kind of helped me with the car. And then when it started going fast, we put a CR500 in it, it went in the 12s, and he's like, "Look, we need to build a real car because your mom's going to kill me if you get dead in this thing." So I'll tell you what, I will sponsor you a Heliarc if you get straight A's in school. So I'm like, all right. So I got straight A's. I got the Heliarc. We went and bought some chromoly and we built a 
actual to the spec NHRA rulebook spec dragster ended up with a uh, with a uh, GSXR eleven hundred engine in it, and we ran in the eights with that car wow. at one hundred fifty miles an hour. But but so I've had a mechanical ability, and you know, obviously later in life I went and worked on regular streetcars, and then the whole thing at Motec. The thing is, you you you've got to focus on the laptop part of it because no one else can do that job. But the and the, the torque converter thing specifically started with with the west the car on the west coast, Ed Thornton's car. Like I didn't want to know anything about torque converters, but we kept having a problem with them. And I finally like I'm going to take this thing apart and look. It can't be that hard. Well, it's not that hard. It's difficult to understand. It's not that hard to take it apart. But I mean, yeah, you do it enough times, it's not a big deal. So when they needed me to knock the converter apart so NHRA could check and make sure it was legal, wasn't really that much of a problem. And the thing is that I like, just like Justin, I like to teach probably because my dad was a teacher. So I have that ingrained in my blood too. And so like one of the nights that we had to take one of the converters apart, I can't remember for what reason or whatever, but in, in Gainesville, you know, again, we have these group of people that have never, they don't, they know what one is, but they don't know how it works. And they don't know. And I'm like, man, I want to teach these guys that it's don't be scared to take one apart and look in there. If if we need someone to change a stator, we need someone more than just me or Jake Hairston or, you know, call. we have to call Mark Mickey or, you know, call Troy Williams over to change a stator because the only people that know how are me and me and and, and Jake and we're busy. You know, so I'm so I took one apart and we had torque converter school. Here's how it works to the level that I know. I'm no expert. Right. I. I'd never wanted to know about a converter, but you get when you work on these cars, you can't do one job because you can't just show up and be the guy that's going to put the tune up in the ECU and walk off because you get cross pollinated with the whole every other system on the car. Because at some point, what you try to do with the laptop won't work because there's something else is going on and you need to be able to understand what that is to be able to, you know, to be able to fix it. So that you can't fix everything with a keyboard. So. Yeah, I'm not. It's it's it seems normal to me, but uh, I, I, mean, I suppose it does, man. But it is cool to see because that's not. I mean, the tuner kind of label or whatever the tuner stereotype is that these aren't guys that get their hands dirty. So I just wanted to make sure that you got you got your 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 due here on the podcast, man. I want people to know that hey, here's a guy who will work on shit, like literally well, I, work I on will, shit. I, but you know, like in a team concept, like look, listen, if if I'm needed. No problem. I'll go get my hands dirty and we'll do whatever it takes if that's what. But there are also some like when I worked with Mikey Reese in the Middle East on on Alexis, you know, something would happen with a car. Oh, man, this thing's just dropped a valve or something. We got to take a motor apart. I'm like, all right, well, what do you want me to do? And Mikey's like, honestly, just get the fuck out of the yeah, way. I was going to say, get out of the way. Like, I, that's that's right, a homeboy like, don't, right don't, there that slings wrenches, bro. That guy right. gets so after he's it. like, if it's going to take me longer to tell you what to do to help me than it is for you to get out of the way and, and let me do my thing. Just go work on it and, you know, get ready for the next run. And, you know, we. One time, one time, we had to race Stevie in the final in in uh, it was probably three years ago in Bahrain, and they were cool, man, and they waited for us, and they didn't have to, but they waited for us, and we had to change motors, so we we took the motor, we had the motor out and back in in fifty five zero minutes. Wow! There was assholes and elbows everywhere. There was people laying under the car because on one of those cars to get the engine out, you got to take the converter, transmission's got to come off, converter's got to come off the back, the motor drive shaft's got to come out, you know, engine's got to come out. There are people like laying all around the car from one side of the car to the other. One guy's underneath taking the drive. He's staying under the car with the tools waiting, you know, parts. Some, some guys are lifting. There was, it was, it was chaos. I think they got a video of it, but it was absolute chaos. But yeah, absolutely. I was in there helping them bolt headers on and, you know, trying to help them get parts bolted on the engine so that we could make the round. Cause like, dude, I, I want to win. No, I want to win like everybody. And you know, that's so, you know, that's something I missed 
I missed saying about Erica when you were talking about the drivers is one thing about her that's really cool. And I'm not saying that 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 Alex and that Steve aren't this way. It just that happened. I happened to notice it about her. I've worked with lots of drivers like this is this comes comes out when you go work on a sports car. You know, you tell them about traction control and some of the drivers are like, fucking, I don't need traction control. I'm you know, I'm better than that. I don't need that to assist me. But I've worked the best drivers that I work with, a guy like Bill Oberlin. Is someone who says, I don't give a fuck what it takes for me to go around the track faster. I don't care if I have to use traction control. If it's allowed, I want to use it. If it makes me better, I want to use it. And Erica has that mindset. When I tell her about, well, maybe we could do something different with, you know, how, how you stage the car. Or we could do something that might be better. She's all, she's all there. She's not like, no, 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 no. I don't need that help. I don't, you know, I'm, I don't need that crutch. I don't, she's like, I don't care. I just want to be better. Yeah, and it's- man, the, the whole team has that attitude right now. The whole Open team mindedness, has that. Open-mindedness, man. It's a – that's – We, we want to so win true. and we don't care how we do it. Yeah, and it's – that's another one of my little nuggets that I use all the time is like beware extreme ideologies. Anybody you encounter in life that has like literally no tolerance for any other perspective or, or zero willingness to explore any other idea, stay the hell away from those people. They're dangerous, man. They're, those aren't those aren't good people to be around, and you're exactly right. That's one thing just even from afar that I've noticed with that entire camp that you're talking about right now, Elite Motorsports, they're, they're certainly willing to swing the bat, man. They're willing to try things. They're willing to explore. They're willing to listen and learn all the time. It's a, it's a really interesting thing, and I want to ask, in, in kind of closing here, uh, and again, man, I really appreciate your time. We've been going at this for a while, but I knew this was sure. kind of how it would go. One yeah. of the things on the horizon, as we look down the road, you, you kind of laid it up here, uh, gave us a softball, but I think it's a really valid question. Is torque converter technology, I mean, is that the next step? Are we about to see, I mean, I've heard people, you know, Stevie Jackson and Billy Stockland, their torque converter program is kind of something of legend at this point in time. I hear about them making stator changes for every few hundred feet of air and just this really almost treating it like a clutch program. It seems to me that, you know, a lot of the pro, pro mod teams that I talk to, whether it's in PDRA or NHRA or Northeast Outlaw Pro Mod, anybody that's running automatic, they have like one converter and then like a, a, a spare that's looser, right? And it's interesting to me because it feels like that's probably what we're about to see is these teams the same way in the heyday of pro stock and pro mod and still in pro stock, you had like a badass clutch guy and those dudes were hard to come by, right? They became premium members of your team was your clutch guy so that things yep. were done consistently. There was an understanding there that things, you know, do you think that that's something that we're kind of staring down the barrel of is on the horizon of these teams kind of adding because we've already seen car chiefs kind of come into prominence in door slammer racing. Now we've got kind of power management guys such as yourself. Is that the next thing that's about to happen where these torque converter programs are going to become even more sophisticated? I would say undoubtedly. That's- undoubtedly, the next, the the place to improve at this point, you could see that all the cars run very similar speed. So they all have very similar horsepower. Uh, we're limited to the same turbos, you know, it's basically a a challenge of how quick can you get the power in? And from that point on, it's pro stock down the back of the racetrack. So there's only so much you can do with the engine. At some point you have to be able to get it on the ground and what's in between the tire and the engine, the torque converter, you know, and obviously the transmission and the diff, but I mean, the converter in my mind is the place that is going to decide whether you're going to be able to win rounds or not. And, you know, you're going to have to run at the level of guys like Stevie Jackson and, you know, and, and obviously Billy 
and, you know, the way Todd runs and Janice and all these guys, man, you're going to have to be willing to shave or, or use those layers of that onion in the exact right order to be able to run to their level. I think maybe I'm way off, but I, it's interesting that you came to that conclusion because I'm, I mean, me and Justin were just talking about it the other day. And so um, it's just something you know, that I feel like I've seen that the writing has been on the wall and you see it where I'm going, okay, because it's funny. I, and this is an argument that I will still make. And I don't know that it's as valid today as it was like 10 years ago, but I was super vocal about being anti-torque converter. And I've had to be really careful with it because, you know, on the drag illustrated side of my life, when I'm not just being, you know, loudmouth dipshit on the internet, I, you know, we do business with tons of people who sell torque converters and I love them all. Like I've got some really good friends in that world, you know, people that I talk to all the time and I've got an equal number, number of friends in, in the clutch manufacturing world. But you know, the whole thing about this show and everything else that we've done on social media, I always preach authenticity. Like, I would just as soon not speak than not say what I think about something and be honest with it. So one of the things that I've always kind of bemoaned about the torque converter revolution was just that it, man, they say pro on the window, they should have a clutch pedal in them. This is, that's what professional drag racing is about, blah, 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 blah. And I remember making kind of a snarky comment to Phil Schuler, who's a friend of mine, a top fuel crew yep. chief and a dear friend of, of Stevie Jackson involved with the operation of that Bahrain One race team. And I, I think I said something to him two years ago about torque converters. We were in the staging lanes in Norwalk. I remember this well, and it was kind of a shitty day, and everybody's doing a lot of standing around. And I said to him, like, man, every one of these damn cars is going to have a torque converter in it before long. It just takes, just, just kills it or whatever. And he's like, hey, man, that shit ain't easy either. That's the problem. All these guys think that it's a that they're going to be able to bolt a converter behind that thing, and it's all over. It's just easy. But they'll find yeah. that if they want to be good at that, the cream rises to the top in that space the exact same way it does with a clutch. It may not happen overnight, but it'll happen. And he he called it, man. I mean, because here we are, and I literally I see it. I bounce from you know I talk to a lot of people or whatever, maintain a lot of relationships out here, and you'll hear. You know, this team's got like one torque converter. That's all. That's the only thing they use. It's that's a that's a in their opinion is that it's a controlled variable. Right. And I guess I apply that's a that's a solid notion. Right. Controlled variable. But then you've got you go a couple trailers down and Stevie Jackson won't even let you in the torque converter section of his trailer. Right. Because it's like proprietary. It's like this this level of of adjustability that he ain't talking to anybody about. So. Anyways, I definitely see like that as the next because everybody's making crazy power, right? It's 260 miles an hour almost across the board. Blower cars going, you know, 255, 256 miles an hour. It's uh, it's nasty right now, man. So, it, look, it's just fear of the unknown, right? And people resist change. And I was as guilty as anybody was of it other than the fact that I got the chance to work on a few of those cars because lots of these import cars uh, don't have clutches. They have converters. But I fucking hated them. Because compared to a clutch, they won't, you know, it's it's a pain in the ass. You always got to use nitrous with a little little bitty engine to be able to get it to leave the starting line. And it's like, man, this is this is just bullshit. Okay, well then I worked on if you remember back actually the Zoyan car that is now the Zoyan, the one that went five sixty six, originally was a Camaro that the Q eighties ran out of the Econu stable. So we had our setup in that car and it they wanted to run a converter. So I was tuning that car and I didn't, there wasn't anybody working on the clutch, obviously, because it was a one converter deal. And I realized, okay, this isn't that bad. This is, 
is actually kind of good. Like it sort of does the same thing every time. Not that the clutch card doesn't, but obviously it takes a guy to make that happen. And it was like, I started, it opened my eyes a little bit. And, and, you know, then I kind of went back into like, okay, keep an open mind, but this might not be that bad. And even like before that I worked with, uh, you know, uh, with Mo, Mo Hattat on, on his turbocharged Mustang that we ran over in Qatar. And that thing was always a converter. And I thought they were dog shit. But when I got a chance to work on them over there a little bit, I went, mm, okay, this is that. But really it's the last few years working with the converters on the West coast in Thornton's car and having my hands inside of them and measuring them and, and checking shit and trying to understand them. That's really allowed me to realize they are absolutely not a one size fits all that everybody thinks they are. Okay. They might be, if you don't care about trying to run very consistently down the racetrack, when you start getting consistent about going down the racetrack, you start realizing all of the different little variables there are that can slightly adjust what the torque converter is able to do. Uh, and I'm not going to mention what they are because I'll let everybody else figure out what they are. <laughs> right, and I don't right. even know that I know all of them yet, but I've noticed that there are several. And if those things aren't controlled, you can pretty much kiss your consistency goodbye. Uh, and, you know, from one, there's only so much you can do power management wise with the laptop at some point, the, the, the hardware, and this has always been the case. You can't fix with the laptop what is mechanically fucked up. It has to be mechanically right first, and then you know it works good with it. When when you're using power management, you're using electronic fuel injection, you are effectively making uh, a a a lock, or you're making a key that fits a specific lock. And if you change that lock, the key won't open the door anymore. And it's, it's down to that level. So I predict that within the next five years, you will see people flying into the racetrack with a torque converter that gets installed into the car and comes out of the car and goes back with that person at the end of the race. Yes, I agree. 100%. Because it will be that, that that's where it's going to go. I believe. I couldn't agree more, man. I couldn't agree more. Well, Shane, I can't tell you how much I appreciate two hours of your time. Oh, my goodness. But do, people <laughs> are going to eat bill, this man. up. We yeah. can keep going all day long. Yeah, send me an invoice. No problem. Yeah. Um, just yep. make it out to Richard Freeman. Send it down there to Elite <laughs> Motorsports. He won't even notice, man. But seriously, Shane, yeah, right. I appreciate it so much, man. I wish you guys the best of luck for the uninitiated, for the uninformed. This weekend, the NHRA Southern Nationals, Atlanta, Georgia, Commerce, Georgia, if you want to be technical. I uh, wish you guys best of luck, man. And, I, again, I really appreciate the time. Make sure you follow Shane online. He's actually one of the best follows in drag racing on Facebook right now. So follow <laughs> Shane. Uh, he has two pages. He has his personal page, Shane Tecklenburg, but he also has Tune by Shane T. He's got like over 10,000 followers. I bet there's not another crew chief in drag racing. There's not another tuner in our sport that has the kind of following that you have, Shane, man. And I appreciate you spending a little bit of time with us. <laughs> Thanks, man. Thanks a lot for the opportunity, obviously. And we'll see you down there uh, in Atlanta. And uh, listen, I, I appreciate the efforts, the Herculean efforts sometimes that you specifically go to uh, to try to. Uh, broaden the awareness of our sport. Obviously, you know, I'm doing this for a living and I'm relying on someone paying me to do this. And that someone is relying on someone else to pay them for, you know, services to make advertisements for them on their car or what have you. And this whole deal doesn't work with, with all of, without all of us uh, kind of, kind of carrying 
uh, a section of it on our backs. And obviously, you know, I get to play around with the race car part of it. Um, but without, without guys like you and, and other guys that are dedicated to our sport in the industry, taking the time to get the stories out to the masses, because it takes the masses to, to be able to generate enough dollars. I mean, we've seen what's happened, obviously, with, you know, with the Street Outlaw stuff. There's a whole new group of people that maybe they don't know what NHRA drag racing is, but they understand what the term means, at least. I and agree. You never know when one of those per- people isn't, you know, working in some big corporation that gets a proposal from a John Force or a Stevie Jackson or a who pick somebody that oh, that says instead of putting it directly in the trash bin, they go, oh, drag racing. Oh, look, maybe I'll thumb through this a little bit. And that is what it's going to take to get the whole sport to stay around and go to the next level. Well, so and thank I, you. No, no problem, man. And I'll just I'll close with, you know, I appreciate you saying that a lot. And it's something that I learned at a really young age, man. I remember growing up racing with my dad and I remember him like tearing, we'd go to a race, we'd go to an NHRA national event and he would get, we would get home and then the latest issue of National Dragster would show up and he would, he would thumb through that thing with such ferocity trying to see if they put a picture of us in there. Is there going to be a picture <laughs> of our car in there? I remember a time when my dad would cut out the classifieds that we ran in the back of National Dragster and keep them as heirlooms. And I would look at my dad like, em. dad, we paid to we paid for that shit to be in there, dude. But that's how much that that ink being spilt kind of in his honor, validating his efforts. That's how much it meant to him. And I and I think I learned that, and that's maybe why Drag Illustrated and all this exists and the way we do the World Series of Pro Mod with no entry fees and stuff is it's like, man, these guys are rock stars. They deserve to be treated like rock stars. And if I can validate those efforts, if I can make them feel good about spending their money going drag racing, then we've accomplished our goal, man. And and that and yourself included. So thanks a bunch for identifying it. We have a we had a lot we have a lot of fun, man. And just like you, I just love this shit. I don't know anything else, man. Yeah, so I know. All right. Well travel safe, dude, and I will see you soon. Thanks, Shane. All right. Sounds good. Thank you, Wes. See ya. See you, buddy.